Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a producer for a lot of fun stuff, including the George Lucas talk show and Rat Scraps. Please welcome Patrick Cottonoir. How's it going, man? Hey, how are you? Really doing great. Um, I was just telling you off the air that I rewatched this movie just today and uh, had a wonderful time. You know, it's getting to be Universal Classics time for sure. Yeah, so. it's great. It's so much fun. I mean, I, we're going to get into it, obviously, but I also watched it today on my nice little Blu-ray set. Oh, yeah. I pulled out my nice <laughs> little Wolfman Universal Collection, whatever it's called. Even got my little uh, BK Universal guys here hanging out. <laughs> oh man look at that all four you can That's see amazing. the invisible man is is right here <laughs> but yes uh, i'm a big uh, universal monsters fan and i'm curious to hear not only about how your relationship to horror started but your relationship mm-hmm. with these older movies in particular because a lot of people have a tough time moving backwards in film history and so yeah for me it's it's a it's a great thing to see where it started from i think i i mean i can't imagine that i watched a scary movie before i saw a universal scary movie i think i probably started with that wow. is my guess and if, i'm trying to think back because i was trying to think about it today like where it all began i loved vincent price when i was a kid because he was on the muppet show of course the, truly that was that we had it on vhs and i would just watch it over and over again it's a great app great app it is it's great and that led me back into that whole genre of stuff but i probably the first universal horror that i saw was probably Abner costello meet frankenstein great one which is great it's one of my favorite movies i got a big old poster of it on my wall like it's one of the the best mm-hmm. uh but i wanted to go like real not that that's not real horror sure. but i wanted to go like full horror traditional traditional yeah and uh when they re-released the movies at some point in the late 90s on VHS. Um, it was around the time when they were doing, like, the postage stamps. Oh, right. With, like, Frankenstein <laughs> and the Wolfman and Dracula on it. It was probably, like, 97, 98, maybe somewhere around there. And we had uh, the VHS tapes for Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman. Maybe a couple more, but those were the big ones. Yeah. And I loved the Wolfman, I think, mostly because I, I loved the makeup. I loved, like... I was a big Star Wars kid. Obviously, you mentioned George Lucas talk show. But, like, my favorite parts of Star Wars were, like, the creature effects Mm -hmm. and, like, the cantina scene and all that stuff. And I think this was the closest thing to that. Whereas, like, Frankenstein, obviously, great makeup. I contend that this is the Jack Pierce masterpiece more than Frankenstein. Wow. A bold claim, but I can see it. It, It's a bold claim, and it's a hill I'm fine dying on, you know? Great. Well, I'm here to back you up. It's been a long year. I'm fine. Thank you. (laughs) I agree. Uh, I think that it really is. It's so unique. It's so recognizable. And it really does such a spectacular job of completely transforming Lon Chaney Jr. It's, It's really just fantastic makeup to be sure if you go back and watch like werewolf london they're getting there (laughs) but the guy like uh uh, what's his name henry hall is that his name right yes he like didn't want to go full makeup on his face because he still wanted to be seen sure which i think is very funny the vanity his i think it's his nephew is this guy named Cortland hull who this is a little tangent but i'm gonna go for it do it i grew up in connecticut and Cortland had a, like a wax museum in Connecticut where it was primarily Universal Monsters made out of wax museum. It's called the Witch's Dungeon. I think it's still open. Wow, that sounds awesome. But he had like a lot of like original props and costumes and like a lot of his uncle's stuff. Uh, so we went there a couple times when I was a kid, and I think that was just one of those things that just like fed into this, you know, monster obsession. I would I would get like all of the books from libraries about the Universal Monsters. I would like try to get anything because it was like 
very early or pre-internet times for me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have access to a lot of it. So I like grew up reading about a lot of the movies before I ended up seeing a lot of the movies. Yeah, I think that they're also pretty unique in the way that they already had, when we were kids, they already had Mm -hmm. such a cultural and um, like zeitgeisty foothold. Totally. And because they were already old at that point, um, our parents felt comfortable with us seeing it. Yeah. You know, they felt like they would be able to explain it away as fantasy or as fiction or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is a really great entryway for younger kids into horror because you can kind of see the sure. facade of it a little more, but it still has these great moments like the makeup. And they're all a slick 64 minutes long, you know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I put it on today to watch this, and I was like, oh, man, I have so much going on today. And then I was like, 68 minutes? Yes, please. I can fit that. I can fit that in Sign for sure. Sign me up. <laughs> so semi-unrelated to today's conversation, although you did mention mm-hmm. that the Muppets were a big part of uh, your your love for this and, and the Vincent Price episode, uh, I saw on Twitter that you watched and enjoyed the Muppets Haunted Mansion. I did. And I did as well. Yeah. So I wanted to just get your take on it, see, uh, give you a place to talk about it. And also, while you're talking about this, if you could Muppetize any horror movie, what movie would it be? Oh, Okay, I'm going to have to come back to that one because that's a great question. That might even be like an end of an episode answer (laughs) because I'm going to have to think about this for a while. All right, keep one real actor. Okay, okay, deal. I really liked Muppets on Mansion. I thought it was really fun. I liked that there were actual, like, scary moments in it. Like, you know, if I was a kid, skip ahead a few minutes if you haven't seen it, because I'm going to spoil a couple little (laughs) things. Nothing major. And again, spoiling a Muppet special, like, you know, (laughs) you're mad about that. What are we doing? Um, the, The Gonzo aging, like, in the mirror, when he, like, gets decrepit and old, it felt like such a classic Jim Henson specific thing that they would do on the Muppet show where there was like, they would sing like time in a bottle and like the guy would get older and older and older. And it was such like a weird body horror thing Mm -hmm. that you don't really see with modern Muppet stuff. That's sort of gotten a little, um, you know, more kid friendly, family friendly stuff, but they weren't afraid to get weird and a little spooky in the old, old days, you know, when, when Henson was still running it. Sure. And I really like stuff like that. I like the Stamos jump scare when he turns into <laughs> the monster at the end. Like there was just like a lot of stuff where I was like, man, you guys are really going for it. And I really appreciate that. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of good scary Muppet stuff out there. Uh, uh, if, if you're a Muppet newbie, I would say, you know, the Vincent Price one is great from season one. And the Alice Cooper episode is also really good. Um, a lot of really spooky stuff. And this felt like it was like getting back to that. And they also brought back a ton of old characters that they hadn't seen in a while. And like, it was just like a who's who of who are Patrick's favorite obscure Muppets. Because like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I, listen, we all like Kermit the Frog. I'm not a Kermit piggy Fozzie guy. Mm-hmm. I'm like an Uncle Deadly, New Zealand, you know, Bobo the Bear guy. Like oh, yeah. guys who are like, <laughs> they're, they're, they're solid. They show up, they get the job done, but they're not in the spotlight all the time. But I think the special is really good. I, I called it on Twitter the best Muppet special since 1990. And I'm standing by that. The best Muppet TV special since 1990. I think I could get behind that. You know, I really enjoyed it as well. I think that there was a lot of great allusions to the actual ride, which I am a big fan of as well. You know, the wallpaper, like even just a little wallpaper with Beaker on there was so cute. Yeah. I'm also a big Pepe the King Prawn guy. Same here. So any movie that uses him as heavily as this movie does, you know, that's going to be right up my alley. So yeah, I I also co-signed this as a a great special and people should definitely check it out if they uh, are able to. I also want to put this into the universe as many times as possible because I want it to be true, so I'm going to pretend like it's true. 
we did on the George Lucas Talk Show, we watched all of Muppets Tonight mm. uh, last year, which was their mid-90s TV show. And we had Brian Henson and Bill Beretta and like Kirk Thatcher, who directed the special on. And we were talking so much about how we missed Johnny Fiamma and Sal, who were like main characters in Muppets Tonight. And then they sort of disappeared because Brian wasn't really doing a lot of stuff with the Muppets. And guess what? They're in this special. And this special <laughs> went into pre-production after they were on our show. So I... I'm taking credit for bringing back Johnny and Sal. I don't care if it's true, but I'm fully taking credit for it. I think you're right. I'm putting that out into the universe. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that you're right, and uh, you should take credit for that. I'm also curious, uh, last question before we get into the actual movie, is if there is a specific subgenre of horror that uh, is your favorite, something that draws you in a little more uh, readily Mm -hmm. than, than others. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't like... Uh, like torture porny kind of stuff. I don't care about it. I don't need to watch Hostel. I'll never watch a Saw movie. Like, it's just not my jam. Mm-hmm. I like older stuff like this a lot. I was, uh, I'm trying to think of what this Muppet movie, horror movie is. And I think I figured it out. And I think it also coincides with my answer here. One of my favorite movies is The Thing. Mm. And I think a Muppet version of The Thing <laughs> is very funny. Wow. That would be really good. I don't think uh, you keep Kurt Russell, but I do think you keep Keith David. Keith David would be really good. Yeah. I'm thinking um, a a really fun character to keep from the thing would be Wilford Brimley and just have him being like a grump in the background with all these muffins. Yeah, but here's the thing. (laughs) But you got Statler and Waldorf. Like, you got to put them somewhere, you know? Great point. Great point. Or even Pops, like, you know, Mm. if we're going a little bit deeper. um, The things I like about uh, in horror movies, um, I rewatched the first Halloween last night i like very you know not a lot of cg i like practical effects i want creatures i want makeup i want something that you can see that you know rick baker made or rob Oteen made or like someone you know an evil dead evil dead 2 like something like that where you're like they made this in a freaking garage <laughs> and that rules yeah and then like took a long time to figure out how to make oh we had to make the head implode and it took <laughs> two months to figure out how to do that i want that kind of stuff i think that's stuff rules and if it looks fake i don't care i think it's fun as long as i'm like oh that was gnarly that was cool hell yeah Um, so i think i think that's kind of my subgenre is like uh practical effect you know uh uh stuff like you know i I don't know where i'm sure effects driven diy kind of stuff driven yes yes that is my that is my jam um, yeah, that rules. I love that stuff too. I think the thing is one of the few movies that still really scares me. Uh, that body horror shit mm-hmm. really fucks mm-hmm. with me. Um, and I think that my Muppetized movie would be probably Jaws. Um, I think that that would be a fun one. Wow. Put him on a boat. <laughs> Keep Quint, maybe. Sure, 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 sure. I like that. Yeah, I guess Sam the Eagle as the mayor. Is the shark still a shark? Great question. Because if you're keeping Quint, I mean, are you also keeping Bruce? You mm. know, that's the big question. That is a great question. Um, I think no. I think that he's a Muppet, too. I don't know which Muppet he is, but I think that he's a Muppet. Uh-huh. I mean, listen, I'm going to throw Pepe out there. Great. I'm just going <laughs> to. Is he still Pepe's size or is it a giant Pepe? Now, you could go giant Pepe. You could also go giant animal like at the end of the Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. The frenzy of animal does kind of lend itself to uh, to Bruce getting up in there, but yes, yes, I think Pepe is funnier in concept and mm. in like maybe a photo, but like if you're <laughs> actually trying to sustain, you know, like on the poster, sure. that's funny. 
But if you're trying to sustain it, I think you need I think you need the animal, maybe. I think you're right. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Jaws or even no. uh, any of those other movies, not even The Muppet Haunted Mansion. We're here to talk about <laughs> our second oldest movie covered on the show, preceded only by M. Oh, wow. It's George Wagner's The Wolfman. Wow, you got a lot in there that have not been have not been touched oh, yeah. yet. I was picturing, like, you get Bride of Frankenstein, you get Frankenstein, you get Dracula. Like, none of these have even been touched yet. That's hey, rad. you're telling me, man. I'm trying to get more people to talk about this okay all right well then i'm glad i'm here (laughs) Um, but this is one of the universal classics from what's known as the golden age of monsters extending from the 30s through the early 40s and this is a particularly fun era for me because i get a real kick out of the stuff they did before the monsters were as heavily established in the cultural canon stuff like at the very beginning of this movie they have to really explain what a werewolf is (laughs) Um, and I've mentioned before in uh, in Dracula 1931, he has this like menagerie of pals that he has hanging around, like vampire bees and possums and armadillos just hanging out in the castle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that's great. The movies are so weird from back then because they'll just like do something. Like, there's so many pieces of lore that have just been adopted as like, this is, you know, how Dracula is. This is how Frankenstein is. But in those movies, there will be stuff where you're like, <laughs> that why didn't that piece catch on yeah you know why didn't this thing grab its collective foothold into our brains as much as like you know garlic or <laughs> you know <laughs> garlic not working on vampires whatever yeah this movie's fun though i really like it i don't know why it was always my favorite i think it's the of the big three i think it's the least slow and i think maybe that's why it was my favorite as a kid it does jump right in yeah i also think that part of what's interesting about these older movies is that there was an audience that had no real disbelief to suspend you know i was reading a review of um bride of frankenstein where somebody was like Uh i will never forgive james wales for making me watch a child drown (laughs) wow (laughs) (laughs) Um, they just really like even going back to the Lumiere bros and the arrival of the train at La Ciotat, you know, there was just, it's scary. (laughs) You got to get out of your seat and run out. It's too scary. It really is. There's no tracks anywhere, but get the heck out of there. Look, you never know when that train is going to come out of nowhere. There was just no media savvy at the time. No, no, of course not. (laughs) Although these are not the scariest thing we've ever seen here in 2021, It was indeed legitimately frightening at the time to say nothing of the actual artistic elements that helped to make them hold up today. So to celebrate the 10th anniversary of their entry into horror with Dracula, Universal commissioned a new monster and wound up with the Wolfman, one of just three Universal classics without a book basis, which I thought was very interesting. Set designer Jack Otterson also basically invented like the look of the creepy forest uh, that films uh, classically have with the bent boughs and full fog, uh, like filling it all up and everything. That's established here. You know, it's crazy to think of like the precedent setting of these movies, but they really have yeah. such an impact on not just horror, but all movies moving forward. <laughs> it is really funny uh, watching this movie. My roommate and I were like looking up the budget and it was like 180,000 or something like that, mm-hmm. which is like 3.2 million or something like that now. Most of it's inside, most of it's on sets. And a lot of the sets are like this could have been used for other movies yeah. you know they a lot of like the, when they're in a store or in like a, a hotel room or something like that it's just like kind of generic sets and we were trying to figure out what costs so much in this movie <laughs> and i i mean that the forest set is great it's mm-hmm. really cool it's really spooky it's just got a good look to it and it feels frankenstein and dracula both kind of feel grand in a way that this movie does not, but that's not a negative thing. Yeah. I don't think. 
I think it's like, it feels smaller and I like that. It, it feels very tight-knit and grounded in a way that the others sort of do not. Think. Yeah, I, I totally agree, especially because there is the psychological element of this one where Lon Chaney Jr. himself is questioning if this is real or if it's not. That having that grounded feeling to it is very important, not only to, you know, making it have that that more small feel, but to making the movie work in general. It's also, it's a good cast. Yeah. It's a good cast. It really is. You know, it features a who's who of monster movies. <laughs> and they sell it. We got Bela Lugosi, Claude Rains, and Lon Chaney Jr. as the titular lycanthrope. Um, Bela had faded a little bit in the 10 years since Dracula, so Universal wasn't going to let him be the star, but he would definitely still be a draw at the time, and Claude Rains had already been The Invisible Man, which is a movie that I really, really enjoy as well. Um, and Lon Chaney was stepping into the spotlight after the recent death of his father, who was himself a horror movie icon, although a lot of his movies are lost. He also, um, something I was watching where I was like, man, he looks so old. <laughs> he like, he looks very old already. And I was watching and I looked it up and he was like four years older than me, five years older than me. And I was like, oh no. Oh no. Come buddy. <laughs> he was a hard drinking man. He, he famously was, yeah. But it was like, this is the beginning of your career, Lon. We got to get this together a little bit. <laughs> It's a marathon, not a sprint, pal. <laughs> yeah. It is worth noting, as you sort of alluded to earlier, that this was not actually the first Universal Werewolf movie. There was Werewolf of London in 1935, but that wasn't that big of a hit. So even though this is the second, it did have much more of an outsized effect on the cultural interpretation of a werewolf, which had varied greatly to that point. And this really like clarified it for U.S. mythology. Yeah. And it's funny, though, because although that was uh, like the famous makeup for this was intended for Werewolf of London... And like you said, uh, Henry Hull was like, no, they need to recognize me. And so they recycled that makeup into this. But I do actually still think that the Werewolf of London movie, like the makeup effects on that look pretty good. I like this better because it is more bestial. Yeah. But for them actively trying to be like, this has to have a more human look to it. I think that the Werewolf of London makeup is really good. I mean, I sort of think it's spookier. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. a little scarier because you're like, oh, this is a dude and I yeah. see his face. And like... I know that it's just a guy versus this where you're like, he's an animal. And the <laughs> other one, you're like, no, it's this, this guy's just a guy who wants to kill me. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely different, but I think they both have their, you know, their positives to it. When I was in elementary school, I, I was just Googling Werewolf of London because I wanted to get <laughs> some of the, the facts right. And I remembered that my library in elementary school had a bunch of like hardcover children's books there were adaptations of these movies. Oh, weird. <laughs> and that was how I would know about a lot of these. Like, they had Werewolf of London, and I was like, I'm the only person renting this book. <laughs> like, no one else is getting it. You check the card in the back, and it's brand new. And it's just my name over and over and over. It was like, it was a all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy situation. It was just Patrick, 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 Patrick. Um I don't know why they had it, That's and I completely bizarre. forgot that existed. That's cool, though. You know, I, I respect a library that has that kind of stuff in it. So Yeah, yeah. I have no idea why they did. <laughs> this makeup, though, has become the stuff of legends, and as all legends tend to do, it has been exaggerated over the years, so it's kind of hard to parse what exactly is the truth about the application of it and all, but the majority of sources that I could find reported it taking about five to six hours for him to get into the makeup and then an additional hour to remove, which that alone sounds like hell. It Well, the thing I was reading about it today too, and it was like, they said it was all applied with spirit gum. Yeah, he was working out of the box, right? 
they did it wasn't they didn't have stuff that was specifically designed for this kind of thing at the time it was just whatever they had the like yak hair and shit like just yeah, applied to his like, face that's just gonna that's gonna mess up his face forever <laughs> you know and his body and everything like that's just that stuff is so hard to get off i've barely used it and i'm like this is <laughs> A nightmare, so I can't even imagine, you know, and that was in 2020, 2021. I can't even imagine what it was like <laughs> 60, 80 years ago trying to get this on and off of this guy. It was just actual tree sap. <laughs> like a block yeah, pretty much. To it. Pretty much. <laughs> um, the real challenge, though, beyond even that, was in filming the actual transformation. Now, this transformation took almost 10 hours to film the lap dissolve that they do at the very end. Because they needed a plaster mold to hold him perfectly still. And then they traced his outline on a pane of glass in front of the camera. Um, and then he'd run over to the special effects department, led by Jack Pierce, who is, like we said, the makeup guy for this and does an amazing job. He'd add a little more of the transformation using the wigs, grease paint, rubber snout, and yak hair, like I said. Trot over, get himself lined up with the outline and everything, get photographed, and have to repeat this over and over and over. Uh, I think it said five or six times they did this over the course of 10 hours to get that, like, 30-second shot. It's so insane. It's so crazy. I mean, it looks great. It still looks great. You know, it holds up. And that's the thing is that it, it does all the effort that it goes into it, it. It's worth it because it looks amazing. And it's no surprise to me that this movie winds up with four sequels of a sort. Yeah. All with Lon Chaney as the titular Wolfman, which is unique to this uh, to this universal monster. And I think as you were saying that, I was like, I think that's probably a reason why I like him the most mm -hmm. is because it feels the most consistent. He is there for all, pretty much all of them. Like, I don't think there's no Larry Talbot appearance that's not Lon Chaney. Nope. Uh, which leads, uh, lends a little bit of continuity to this very complicated, very uh, frustrating <laughs> series of movies sometimes where you're like, who's this guy now? <laughs> Who is this? He's But he died like four times at this point. Why are we still having, you know? <laughs> And he's great. He's great. He's sad. Like, he, like, brings so much to the character, I think, more so than, you know, because he has actual emotions more than Dracula and, and uh, the Frankenstein monster. Like, you don't really get much out of them. Yeah. And this is uh, a curse. Like, this is very much something that he's not interested in. You know, I, I remember yeah. in the Abbott and Costello one where he's, like, yeah. pleading with them to keep him locked up in the room and everything. Totally. totally. <laughs> like, this is something that he is miserable being afflicted with. Now, I was talking with my roommate today when we were watching the movie because I did force him to watch it with me. <laughs> um, he got to watch. He was lucky, <laughs> and he should thank me for it. <laughs> it feels like the Wolfman in 2021, right? We're in 2021 right now. The Wolfman would be the easiest to keep under control mm -hmm. of those three. <laughs> where you're like, you know when it's going to happen. Yeah, you can prepare. Just put him in a bunker. Put him in a basement. <laughs> lock him in a basement. You know, like, this should be fairly easy. Put him in a jail cell, whatever. Versus the other two, obviously. There's it's a little bit more of a wild card thing. <laughs> well, also, we don't even know what's going on with the pendant. They're like, this pendant will That's protect true. you. And That's maybe true. it would. So Does that pendant come back in other movies? I genuinely don't I don't, don't think remember. so. I don't think the I don't pendant think ever comes either. back. <laughs> the pendant is one of the things that we were saying earlier that they just drop and they're like, eh, yeah. ignore that. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the movie did come out and it was received extremely well. It did fantastic. The studio was nervous about releasing a horror movie just two days after Pearl Harbor, but the audience ate it up. They needed a break from the terror that was going on. Desperately want to talk about this. <laughs> this. This was a big topic of conversation today while we were watching it. Because we were like, 
all those newsreels at the beginning of this movie are absolutely like war in the South Pacific. Like, mm-hmm. and then you have to just come watch this. And it's very fresh. Mm-hmm. It's so fresh. I was shocked. I did not realize that. Also, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to step over your uh, you talking about this. They said they wrapped filming November 25th, 1941, and then this was in theaters on like December 12th. <laughs> That's turnaround, like that. baby. That's a crazy turnaround. I mean, I guess it's 64 minutes, but yeah. like. <laughs> that's an insane turnaround. Yeah, that's wild. Um, I don't know. Everything about this feels like they were just rushing it out. And it's funny, too, that that turnaround is so tight. Yeah. Especially when they were like, oh, maybe we could delay this because of this giant, like, that's, huge war thing breaking out. Perfect <laughs> excuse. <laughs> but they didn't, and uh, it ends up working out. Lon Chaney actually uh, got the most fan mail of any star on the Universal lot, they said. So, good for him. And everything turned out great for him, and he lived a nice, happy life, (laughs) and nothing sad or bad happened. Exactly. Just believe us. Nobody look into it. (laughs) Don't look into it. (laughs) To get into the actual movie, I love this hand-painted title card right away. You get this bombastic score. Yes. It's so fun and enthusiastic right away. And I think that that also kind of differentiates it from some of the other um, Universal monsters that take a little bit more time building that Mm -hmm. atmosphere. This really throws you in. Yeah. I mean, I guess at this point they knew what they were doing, you know, versus those other two. It was like pretty early on. Uh, And I think, you know, when you're talking about those, I'm mostly talking about the first, you know, Frankenstein and, and Dracula one versus this one. They're like, listen. Let's just go for it. We know what works. We know what is going to be good. Let's really just kick it off with the score, which I also read today that that score was also used in another Lon Chaney movie that came out the same year and was scored by the same guy. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. Wow. I saw it on IMDb, uh, and then I did not look into it anymore. <laughs> so. Could be. Hey, I'll buy it. Okay, here we go. The film coincidentally uses the same music theme as Man-Made Monster, also starring Lon Chaney Jr., featuring composer Hans Salter and musical director Charles Previn. Yes, they could get away with it. There was no IMDb at the time for people to be like, does this theme sound super familiar to anyone? (laughs) We we must have just seen this, I think. It also, wait, Man-Made Monster came out before. Wow, the plot thickens. Sorry. Don't apologize. This is fascinating. plot thickens. So bizarre. I think I gotta watch Man Made Monster tonight. <laughs> yeah, if anyone out there knows anything about the score, uh, let us know. There's some some great film historians who have uh, let me know stuff about the show, so would love to hear from you. Uh, we're also greeted to an encyclopedia opening with the definition of lycanthropy, which reads as follows: Werewolfism, a disease of the mind in which human beings imagine they are wolfmen, according to an old legend in all caps. <laughs> which persists in certain localities. The victims actually assume the physical characteristics of the animal. There's a small village near Talbot Castle, also in all caps, which still claims to have had gruesome experiences with this supernatural creature. Great handy little intro that clarifies even further when we meet our main character, Larry Talbot, returning home to exactly that castle. Saying it's of the mind feels very um, (laughs) victim-blamey. You know? Yeah. Like, well, it's I, not real, you yeah. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's part of what makes this movie pretty interesting to me is that there is kind of these two sides constantly butting heads in this movie. Is There's yeah. the Romani tribe of people who are like the emotional side who are like, yeah, 
that was a wolf. That was my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're turning mm-hmm. into this wolf. And then there's like the sciencey side led by Sir John Talbot, who is like, this is all in your head. Me and the doctor think that you're just like imagining it. Even if it is true that you believe it's happening, it's not the facts of what's physically happening. Um, And that struggle between the two sides, I think, is an interesting reflection of the good and evil battle that is raging between the Wolfman and Lon Chaney Jr. as Larry Talbot. Definitely. Have you seen um, have you seen the remake? The Benicio one? No, I haven't. Yeah. I want to. I hear mixed things. Some people have said it's very good. Some people have said not to waste my time. I like to make my own mind up, but I sure. believe that it's good. I like Benicio. I watched it this year. I'd never seen it before, and we watched it because we had, I don't know if you heard, there was a pandemic and we were all stuck inside, so there was that not much else That doesn't sound familiar. Do. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of CG stuff in it. But then there's a lot of really good Rick Baker stuff in it. and Yeah, he worked on that, right? That's a great yeah, sign. Was, it was like one of his like last things, I think, that he worked on. He's one of the uh, all-timers, you know? I got this huge... There's a giant Rick Baker book. It's like a two-volume. I think J.W. Rinsler wrote it. Oh, hell yeah. And so much of it is Wolfman stuff because it was like his <laughs> his passion project for so long. And that yeah. was like the thing he wanted to do. Oh, the thing I wa- also wanted to bring up, something I noticed in this movie that I don't think carries over into the other ones with Lon Chaney Jr. When he's walking in the forest, he's like walking on his toes so yes. that his feet look like a wolf. And I don't remember that in other ones, but I was like, oh, that's cool. And I I was like psyched to notice it because it was not (laughs) something that my brain ever picked up on before. Yeah, that is really cool. I also don't think that it is, but it does explain why this motherfucker is so difficult to get to stand up because he is kind of on his little tiptoes here, you'll see. That's really funny. Yeah, I like that a lot too. And I think that it's such a great transition to be like focused on the feet. I'll talk about this more when we actually get to that scene, but yeah, just what a fun transition of following along and like teasing it to be like, you don't get to see the transformation. You just follow along the feet, but, um, but it's cool. Uh, but yeah, so he's, he's headed home because his brother recently died in a hunting accident, Mm -hmm. leading him to reconcile with his previously estranged father, Sir John Talbot played by Claude Rains. And I thought it was very funny how much taller Lon Chaney Jr. is than Claude Rains. I said that to my roommate today. I said, Lon Chaney Jr. is huge and Claude Rains is a tiny little man. How did I would love to see the mother because I don't understand. Oh, man, that was very funny to me. Yeah. But he's, he's going to be helping to run the estate with the smarts that he got in America. Uh, he'd been there for 18 years working on the Mount Wilson Observatory, which has given him a good handle on electronics and celestial instruments which is perfectly convenient because the one at Castle Talbot is needing uh, some repair. While he's looking through this telescope, he sees Gwen Conleaf, who runs the antique shop in the village, played by Evelyn Ankers. Now, amazing performance by her as well. Her and Lon Chaney Jr. did not get along. No. (laughs) No, no, no. A lot of that had to do with his drinking as well and uh, (laughs) retaliating to her being given uh, his dressing room because he trashed it. Um, So uh, impressive that they managed to make the movie as excellent and keep that, at least it feels like there's some genuine chemistry between them or the characters to me, for them to be able to maintain that despite the... uh, 
behind the scenes antics of Mr. Cheney Jr. here. There was a quote I read from her that was like, it was talking about how they didn't get along because of his like childish behavior or something yeah. like that. And I'm like, that's such a 1950s quote for being like, yeah, he was an asshole and it sucked. <laughs> yeah. Like it was like such a like more simpler time of, of uh, throwing your co-star under the bus. <laughs> I mean, listen, I think that's probably why he's so believable in this part is because he, he was an alcoholic and it was like very bad. And I think it's, you know, probably, I don't want to put words in his mouth, probably could relate to this character of, like, having two different distinct sides of his personality and, like, having to go between them and, and you know, it, it not being his fault 100%. Like, he had to do this whether he wanted to or not. It was just a part of his life. Um, so I'm sure that that really influenced him. Yeah, I mean, you uh, look and, at the moments where this. he's, like, waking up and you see, like, yeah. the memories, like, kind of coming back piecemeal to yeah. him of, like, the night before. Yeah. That feels like someone who is, like, used to that. Yeah. So uh, he goes in to ask about the earrings that she was putting on when he saw her through this telescope. And she's intrigued because she doesn't know how he knows about it. But once he starts hitting on her, I love this reaction of hers where she's just like, oh, God. All right. Let's just look at these canes. <laughs> <laughs> One That's that a very. Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. I didn't really have anything substantial to add to that. <laughs> I like the cane. That was what I wanted to talk about. I Great. think the well, cane's a cool design. It sure is. It's huge. Yeah. It is a huge silver wolf's head on it. And at the base of the head, another wolf, this one inside of a star. It's intense. It would make a good putter, as he says. <laughs> Great prop. It really is. Yeah. Uh, I believe it. A, a collector in Maryland owns it now. I was looking it up just to see where it was. This guy, Bob Baker, had it for a long time, who's like yeah. a, a film historian and then uh, some rich guy bought it. And some rich guy bought it. <laughs> uh, oh, well. What if I just, like, pulled it out on the Zoom? What if I was like, it's right here? I would be, first of all, very impressed. And second of all, <laughs> say, I didn't know you were in Maryland. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's very cool. And Gwen tells him that it represents the werewolf, a human being who changes into a wolf at certain times of the year. Uh, she also says that in, uh, it's a classic legend that Little Red Riding Hood is in fact a werewolf story. And heck, check out this poem that we have here in the village that says, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfsbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. And you're, you're like, oh my God, it's autumn right now. <laughs> now they drop autumn eventually. Full moon is bright, I believe. Yeah, or yeah. Big and bright is, or something like that. Full and bright or something yeah. like that. Because I think they realized, hey, all these moons are not going to be in autumn. <laughs> I really <laughs> like the idea, though, of like all werewolf attacks being confined yeah. to fall. <laughs> People being like, what the fuck he's, is happening? He's got 10 months of the year where he's like, I'm fine. <laughs> but don't come near me in October and November. Uh, scary times around then, for sure. <laughs> a lot of people think this is an actual ancient legend or old saying, uh, but the screenwriter, Kurt Siodmak, uh, claims to that he just made it up. And uh, <laughs> good for him. Yep. It sounds great. It sure and, does. You know, Listen, if that was my legacy, being the guy who came up with that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm doing all right. That's a win. I'm fine. That's a I'm real Kurt win. Siodmak. I'm doing great. She also reveals the connection with the star, although they call it a pentagram several times. It's really just a star. <laughs> she says every werewolf is marked with it and sees the pentagram in their next victim's hand. And so he's amused by this tale. He buys the cane and he says he's going to come back at eight so that he can take a walk, test out the cane 
talk about how he knew about the earrings, and and she is reluctant, but is also, uh, you know, he's very insistent, and there is a charm that he has, despite the uh, unwillingness to hear the word no. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he should learn. You know, maybe it would help his life a little bit more. He wouldn't have become the werewolf. I think everyone can take that piece of advice to heart. Yeah. That's the real morality tale at play here is learn to <laughs> learn to hear no and you won't become a werewolf. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's okay to hear no, guys. Yep. Back at home, John Talbot is cautioning him about completely dismissing the lay the legend, saying that it probably has some kernel of truth to it and that it might have been an explanation of multiple personalities back then. Um, it is interesting to see how it is approached from such an opposite perspective here. He does indeed go back that night, uh, though Gwen told him no, and she uh, acquiesces to walking her and her friend Jenny back on account of it being dark and spooky, which it certainly is. And I love that they're like, oh, look, Wolfsbane, so that Jenny can recite the poem too. That was just so funny <laughs> to me. <laughs> they just really want to beat you over the head with it, uh, much like, uh, you know, people get beat over the head in this movie a lot. Um, they sure do. It happens a lot in this movie. It happens multiple times in this movie. Yeah, well, they're all like, yeah, you can kill a werewolf with a silver bullet, and not one silver bullet is fired in this. They're all just bludgeoning it. That's true. I, <laughs> why even introduce that? <laughs> just silver, so I guess. Funny. Um, funny. Yeah, he uh, he has to beat the werewolves over the head with, uh, with the cane, and that's how they do mm-hmm. it. But as they pass through this Romani encampment, Jenny wants to have her fortune told, and Larry says, hey, let's take a walk instead of listening in. And like I said, he does have a, a general charming demeanor, and she's worn down by this persistence, so she agrees. She does warn him that she is engaged, though, here. Now, that guy does not play a particularly large role in this. Not at all. But again, he needs to hear no. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. just coming back to that again. It sure is. At the fortune telling, this is where we see Bela Lugosi. Very fun, small role for him in this. I like it a lot. I think he gets to still be a little over the top and utilizing some of that Dracula flair that he was so famous for. Yeah. It is a very small role, though. Mm. Yeah, it really is. Is he in two scenes? Yeah, I think he like there's like a shot of him arriving and then like two scenes where he's talking and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, it's pivotal, but it is it is definitely uh, kind of shocking to see someone of that caliber, especially someone so famous at the time. Yeah. You know, sort of have that tiny role. But like I said, he uh, he had also been a little bit of a lush. You know, they all had their issues. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think he also wanted this role. That was something that I had been reading, and it feels a little bit like a consolation. Like, well, you're not going to get the main role, but, you know. Still a wolf man. Still a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> he goes into the meeting. He's like, I, I would like to be the wolf man. And they were like, okay, you can be a wolf man, Bella. Is that what you want? We'll make you a wolf man. He's like, yes, please. And then they sure, brought him to set. They brought him to set, and he's like, so the movie's about me? And they're like, I mean, kind of. It's about a wolf, man. It's about a wolf, man. And you are in it. Yeah. So. But uh, he gets, he does get this fun scene where he gets to um, do the fortune telling. He reveals like the star on his own forehead, which is fun, that they don't all have it in the same place. I like that that's a little bit of flair that they don't really even talk about but it's just uh, put on screen but his weariness and fear at what he's going to do when he sees the star in her hand um Mm -hmm. it's just really great you know she gets frightened and quickly leaves and he demands that she go as fast as possible 
it really okay. does create a, a, a great increase in tension here. All of a sudden, it becomes a much more uh, realistically scary movie, you know? No matter what's happening, you're like, oh, this is the part where people would start getting frightened, and, and it still works in pieces here and there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, she's great. I'm looking at her Wikipedia page right now. She, like, does a lot of stuff with Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> like, <laughs> for not really liking him. She's in Son of Dracula with him. She's in The Ghost of Frankenstein with him. She's in The Frozen Ghost. Like, there's, like, wow. multiple, multiple things that, uh, I guess... You're under contract. <laughs> she, yeah, she probably didn't have much of a choice. It's probably a sad story. Yeah, and, I uh, think uh, that seems possible to me. Oh, well. But uh, Gwen and, and Larry hear Jenny's screams echoing in the night, and he jumps into action, and he tracks her down. And he kills the wolf with his walking stick, but in the scuffle, he does himself sustain a bite wound on his chest. And uh, I read that that was actually Lon Chaney Jr.'s own German Shepherd that uh, that was playing the wolf there. Yeah, Uh do you think he got paid extra to bring the dog? No. <laughs> no. Because it's like, because listen, I'll say this, George. When you work on a movie and you wear your own clothes, mm. you get paid extra. That's true. So I just feel like maybe they threw a couple extra bucks. Maybe. Maybe they, um, look, I, I feel like back when they had people uh, in their stable, <laughs> those kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> Uh, ac- um, concessions maybe weren't quite yeah. as uh, as popular. Probably not. Probably not. I'm just saying the movie cost three point two million dollars. Had to go you somewhere. Know, like, had to go somewhere. Might as well go to the dog. Yes, I agree. That dog should have gotten his own day rate, frankly. <laughs> But uh, Larry gets taken home after the scuffle, and the police go out to the scene of the attack where they find Jenny dead with her throat ripped out, Larry's walking stick, and not a wolf, but Bela, who, by the way, is also playing a character named Bela. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he's also dead. Yeah, it does. (laughs) They couldn't get him to look when they were calling him the character name. So they're like, okay, (laughs) it's just Bela. (laughs) Um, and, And he is dead from blows to the head, much like the wolf would have been. Mm-hmm. And so when they confront Larry about the death of Bela and his cane, he says, yeah, that's my cane. I killed a wolf with it. Here's the bite to prove it. And then on his chest, there's no wound. This is a really great little moment for me. I love the look on his face, the disbelief that he feels as he as he shows off uh, the where the wound should be. Mm-hmm. For them to just be like, well, I, we don't know really what's going on either. It's not like DNA <laughs> forensics was a thing. All they can do is like look at the corpse and go, did they sign I it? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I see it. It's right there. <laughs> and they literally go, well, the corpses aren't going anywhere. Yeah. When Bela is interred, his mother, Maleva, played by uh, Maria Uspinkaya. The great. Uh, also great in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. she says that he can finally find peace. The town, on the other hand, is unrestful. Uh, the church is upset at Bela's pagan funerary celebration, and Jenny's mother bursts into the antique shop to blame Gwen for Jenny's death, only leaving when Larry himself strides in and is like, he's a big guy, he's big and intimidating. And the mother mm-hmm. like does like a legitimate double take when he walks in. That's very funny. <laughs> I mean, listen... She's probably, here's probably why she's used to John Talbot. (laughs) And she's like, that guy, I know John Talbot. He's a little tiny guy. I could take him. I could take him. And then Larry walks in and she's like, who the heck's this guy? He's Mm. gigantic. A mountain of a man. But uh, she does indeed leave. And uh, Gwen's fiance, Frank Andrews, who is the gamekeeper for the Talbot estate, isn't far behind Larry. But he is also accompanied by a dog who freaks out 
at Larry, mm-hmm. barking its little head off, which I also thought that was a fun moment where mm-hmm. it's one of those things where they don't explicitly talk about it, but the dog's freaking out at this, what is essentially a wolf. I think that that's a cool touch as well. Yeah. I, I'm trying, now that we've talked about it, I'm like, what carries over into other movies? <laughs> I'm sure that that shows up again. Yeah, I think that that is one. Yeah, I think that that does yeah. carry through. Yeah. Um, it's probably not as common just because they didn't always have dogs around, but I think that certainly in more recent werewolf sure. movies. Sure, sure, sure. Frank and Gwen run into Larry again later at the fair, but he has a weird reaction to the image of the wolf appearing on the air gun game there. And as he leaves, he's stopped by Maleva, and she reveals that the wolf was real, but was Bela in the form of a wolf, a werewolf only killable thanks to the silver handle on his stick. And this interaction that they have, the, like weary like despair that Maleva has at like the death of her son and everything but the peace that he now has yeah i just think that a lot of it really comes through this this character does such a great job of providing kind of an emotional core for him to bounce off of she's great and she shows up again in at least one of the other yeah she's in frankenstein meets the wolfman too right she's so good she was a an acting teacher in la and you can tell because she's like really an actor you know she like brings a lot of like gravity to that part and like you could tell that she's very good um yeah she was nominated for an academy award like she's cool she's cool i read i read some book that talked about her this year and i i was like it was killing me today because i was trying to remember what it was about (laughs) but it was just like talking about how cool she was and i cannot remember any of the details and i'm furious about it (laughs) well Folks, just start reading history books out there. Just, You'll find it just eventually. Read books. I don't know. You'll find something. <laughs> she tries to give Larry a pendant that will break the spell, warning him that whosoever gets bit by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf themselves. He hurries away, though, and the Romani pack up their camp and leave. Now, he runs into Gwen on the way home, and Larry tells her what he got told, giving her the pendant for protection from him. Just in case, he says, and they smooch before she leaves after the breakdown of the camp disrupts them. Mm -hmm. And this is another moment where, you know, we've seen her sort of being worn down by Larry's romantic uh, endeavors here. And this moment where he gives her the pendant to say, like, look, even if I don't believe this, even if I don't know what's happening, what I feel is real. I want you to be safe from whatever Mm -hmm. is about to go down. That, to me, helps the romance feel a little more, like, healthy and, and, like, contributes to the show, to the movie in a positive way. Um, Because there is at least some some real feelings there, it seems like. Is he, I'm guessing, like, he's, like, the only universal monster that, like, has a romance that is not, I mean, even this is, like, a little weird, but, like. It's the most normal, I guess. Yeah. Instead of like, you know, Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, weird romance. Mm. Uh, Dracula and any of his brides, weird romance. Like, there's a lot of just weird stuff. Even with, um, like, Mina Harker, you know, and sure. and trying to get, like, that specific girl back. Like, yeah. having to, like, lure her to Romania yeah. and be like, you're the spiritual successor to my uh-huh. old bride. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, that's uh-huh. weird. <laughs> weird. Weird guy. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to come out and say it. Count Dracula, weird guy. Wow, this is cancel culture, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Count Dracula. Trying to take him down a peg. Out here. Unbelievable. You know what? He deserves it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm co-signing this. Count Dracula, you're a weird guy. And that's why he's the one universal monster toy I don't have. <laughs> Good. His movie's also kind of boring. I'll say it. Look, it was the very first one. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. It has its boring moments, but... I do think that the armadillo should come back into Dracula lore. 
So <laughs> give the armadillos their own movie in the dark universe. Yes. Okay. Now we're now we're talking. Now here. we're talking. <laughs> it's John Cena as the armadillos. Wow, I love this idea, folks. <laughs> this is it. This is the one. Um, the dark universe is back, and yeah, we thought that it had been canceled after <laughs> after everything that it had gone through. But they're bringing it back with vampire armadillos starring John Cena. What more do you need? Yep. <laughs> I love. Um, Larry Talbot's vision that he has here. It's very disorienting. Yes, it's great. It's so cool. When I was watching it, I was having a lot of like vertigo vibes. Like, yeah. it, it, you know, faces zooming in and zooming out of the camera and like swirly things going around, you know, just like a lot of like very, uh, you know, Hitchcockian or Willy Wonka in the tunnel. Mm. You know, there's no knowing where we're going moments. <laughs> Just a lot. It was very cool. I forgot about it. And when it was happening, I was like, oh, this is rad. And it feels a lot more modern than a lot of the rest of the movie. I did think it was weird when they showed a chicken getting its head chopped off like they do in the Wonka ride. <laughs> I mean, listen, I am fine with it. They should have put Gene Wilder in there. That's what I'm saying. Too. <laughs> I, would be, I would be into that. He rushes home after this vision to inspect himself and everything seems normal. Until he checks his feet, which this guy is looking like a freaking hobbit up in here. Yeah, yeah. And as he's looking at his extremely hairy feet, they change into full-on wolf's paws before he stalks yeah. out of the room with the camera still on these paws. And like I alluded to, this choice is so great because it makes the full reveal in the next scene that much more impactful. To see him in the full makeup and staring right at the camera is such a shocking change. And they get you wanting to see how it happened. You know, also setting up the transformation sequence when you're like, oh, my God, he's a wolf. I got to see the rest of him. All we're seeing is this little piece of him at the bottom. It's such a smart move to sort of tease that out. It's so cool. And I mean, it happens weirdly late in the movie, too, I feel like. 40 minutes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 40 minutes out of a 65 minute movie is like. <laughs> pretty dang late yeah i guess i don't feel cheated out of it because you see him in so many other movies mm -hmm. versus like you know bride of frankenstein definitely definitely cheated out of the bride of frankenstein <laughs> yes. you're like really we're getting like 18 seconds of her finally someone said it yeah <laughs> come at me james whale i'll say it to your face look i'm i'm totally i'm in total yeah. agreement <laughs> uh you know he at least shows up later on and it, it otherwise it would have felt like such a waste of a good makeup and a you know yeah i also think that the fact that when we do see him in these later moments he is so in the can like he's so in frame mm -hmm. dead center mm -hmm. lit well he's not like hiding in the shadows really you really yeah. get to take in the makeup which i think yeah. is definitely to their benefit because it is so iconic and unique if he's just wandering around the fog this whole time ultimately we don't get to attach ourselves to him that much but by really getting sure. to soak it in they do a much better job of sort of ingraining him into your memory and and uh, your emotions and it's for our benefit yeah we're, we're certainly we're is. the winners here yeah <laughs> you wonder if when they were in pre-production if the fog was semi-designed to be like if this looks bad <laughs> at least we have the fog because I could see that from a production standpoint being like, we've got the, like, if it doesn't translate on camera, at least we've got that. I believe it. And then they just went with both of them. Yeah. I absolutely believe it, especially since Lon Chaney Jr. I didn't mention this when we were talking about the pre-production stuff, but he came onto the yeah. like cast like a week before the movie like was ready to shoot. It's crazy. Um, and so if they had someone that they weren't totally happy with his performance and they weren't sure how the, the applications for the makeup were going to turn out, 
I could definitely see that being a choice to be like, well, we might have to cover some stuff up. I mean, they also wouldn't have time to recast because the movie was coming out in four weeks. Like, <laughs> not enough time. Very true. <laughs> Lon Chaney howls in the fog as the gravedigger stares at him until he leaps out and kills him. And this animalistic tendency that he has here really is pretty shocking. You know, he really, like, goes for his neck, and, and it feels yeah. really brutal compared to what you're expecting based on the previous Universal Monster movies, in my opinion. Yes, totally. The other ones, I mean, like, Werewolf of London, he definitely goes for it, too, but it's to a different degree. But, like, Frankenstein and Dracula are definitely more subdued, obviously. They're not as... Um, I, they're physical, but in a different way. Right. It's definitely a different, uh, uh, you know, acting style and a different character type. But he really feels like he embodies it. And I wonder if it's because he was so covered up everywhere. <laughs> like, he had hair everywhere. He had the feet on. He had the, you know, the all covering his face where he felt like he could really, like, dig into it a little bit more than, yeah. like, you know... I don't know. I would absolutely believe that, though, and it is, again, very much to the movie's benefit. The police find only wolf tracks leading away as a clue, and I another moment that I love is seeing these muddy paw prints lead to the bed where Larry has passed out. Mm -hmm. Really just a spectacular little thing, and to see the feet, like, kind of changing as well as the tracks lead to it, it's just fantastic. Um, I also really like that his hair is all still fucked up from the Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, they really lean into that in Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. I feel like his hair is like, why? Every time they're just like, all right, just run your hands through your hair and just like shake it around a little <laughs> bit. And that's what we're going to go for because uh, his hair is nuts in that movie. Yeah, it really is. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I, I like that this is, again, something that kind of differentiates himself because Count Dracula in particular, his whole thing is being so well composed. He's Everything is mm-hmm. pristine and in place. And, and Frankenstein is by his very nature, cobbled together. And so you're kind of expecting that. But for this handsome, composed man to kind of Jekyll and Hyde himself into this disarray and and bedraggled kind of uh, uh, mess, it's it's really great. Now, he checks and he finds the mark of the werewolf on his chest where the scar would have been, and he sees this, and he's all worried. And he quickly cleans up the mud, and he's racked with guilt, and he asks his dad to tell him more about the werewolf legend. And his dad simplifies it as the evil in man taking the guise of an animal. And he doesn't believe that it's real, but he believes that he believes it before they head to church as a balance to the doubts man is plagued with these days. <laughs> Something I read about that church. Do you know about this? Uh, I, it was like not a real church, right? It just looks like it. Well, apparently people online were like, if you think this church looks like a, th- a cathedral, you're right, because it was the cathedral built for the Lon Chaney Senior Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. And uh, what that's a cool. what a cool little connection between them. Yeah. Now, the rest of the town is gossiping about the murders in the mm-hmm. like church entryway here. And Jenny's mom, out and out, accuses Talbot. And so the whole <laughs> dang church stares at him as he enters, <laughs> which is another <laughs> great little moment here. And he turns and leaves as the service begins. And I'm curious, I want to get your opinion on it. If he is compelled to leave and this is like another thing that just didn't carry through for like for werewolves or if he's just uncomfortable being around the people who are staring at him. Yeah, or both. Could definitely be both. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure it's not a fun situation to be in. Yeah. And 
Larry tells the men who've been trying to figure this all out that it's not a wolf, it's a werewolf. Mm -hmm. But the doctor echoes Larry's father, saying that a man could do a lot to himself in his own mind as the constable and Frank head out to set some traps for the wolf. Larry also heads out to get some rest, and the doctor encourages Sir Talbot to send him away for his own good, that the shock and the town have disturbed Larry. And Sir Talbot is reluctant, saying that the best thing for him to do is to be at home and fight it out, to which the doctor asks if their reputation is more valuable to them than their son's health. And this, to me, is such a through line to today, something that really keeps this modern, because that is such a very current topic with the way that people react to therapy and mental health issues a lot of the time, sure. is refusing to like say, oh, my, my son isn't weak, he can't go to therapy. Like This feels so still modern and, and, and authentic and real, and it really helps ground the movie and keep it accessible. Definitely. And it's, uh, you know, that's a shame. That should not be the way the world is. Still, yeah. you would think a movie that's 80 years old would uh, uh, <laughs> feel a little different than today. And it's interesting, in the remake, can I spoil the tiniest little thing in the remake Do it. for you? yes. I feel like at this point, who cares? <laughs> John, spoiler alert, is also a werewolf. What? His wow. dad is a werewolf. So I feel like that uh, it changes the relationship a little bit. But mm -hmm. this movie, I kept, I was like trying to remember if it was like that in the original one too. He might be. I you feel have no idea. It, that's true. It might be. Because <laughs> we never see him again. So yeah. it might be. <laughs> Who knows? That's really cool though. I think that that does really change it in an interesting way. Especially when you look at it as kind of like him passing that along and, and being so unwilling to confront it within himself and then not allowing yeah. his son to confront it either. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. I definitely want to check that movie out. Uh, that night, Larry does indeed get caught by the trap <laughs> that mm -hmm. they set for him, mm -hmm. but Maleva mm -hmm. is still lurking around, and she frees him since it wasn't Larry's fault that he's this way. And she, this is now the second time she's said this little uh, spiel about the path you walk is thorny, but it's not your fault, and, and finally yeah. you can be at peace. And he limps off as the men and dogs approach, saying that he's doing the same thing as them, of course. Hunting. That's a fun line. <laughs> he goes to the village, and he wakes Gwen up, and he says that he's leaving. And she says that she'll go with him, and he warns her to stay away since he sees the mark on her hand indicating her as the next victim. And he flees the scene in an effort to protect her. And this, it's quite a swerve for <laughs> our female <laughs> hero here to just be like, yeah, all right, let's fucking get out of here. Sounds but, good. Let's go. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that it is, it is of course, a, uh, a tragic inevitability that he would see the mark on her hand. And I think that that is something that is a, a very, in terms of story, a very impactful moment. He tells his father about his situation, but Papa Talbot, of course, does not believe him again. He does, however, restrain Larry in an, in an effort to prove that it's all in Larry's mind. He leaves to go on the hunt, but Larry... Well, let's, be clear about the, <laughs> let's be clear about the restraint. It's not that much of a restraint. No, it's, it's not. <laughs> he probably should have done... It's like a couple belts tied around mm -hmm. him. He probably should have done a little bit more on a wooden chair that is very clearly going to break. Yeah. Well, this is the problem with, with just doing it for the appearances, is he didn't believe it. And, uh, oh. and so... Of course, he uh, immediately breaks through, you know, the, it, but mm -hmm. I will say I love this is another really emotional moment that I think is uh, something that Lon Chaney is really bringing to this movie is when he says, take the cane with you to his father so that he's mm -hmm. defended in case Larry attacks, that even if it means his death, 
that he is so uh, appalled by the idea of hurting people that he is willing to take that chance and say, no, kill me if you have to, yeah. because I don't want to have to do this, uh, this damage. Now, if you were a wolfman, would you feel the same way? <laughs> Look, I, I feel like I want to say yes. It, it would probably suck. I guess it depends on how painful the wolf transformation is, because that varies yes. from movie to movie. You know, if yeah. I'm sitting there screaming like American Werewolf in London every single time, yeah. that seems pretty fucking terrible. <laughs> sure. So. This this version does not seem that bad. No, no, it doesn't. Um, especially if it's only in the autumn. <laughs> <laughs> Twice a year, I can handle that. Yeah, I think I'd probably take the risk. <laughs> um, unfortunately, Lon Chaney Jr.'s good intentions don't stop him from, in fact, becoming a werewolf and heading out into the woods. The same woods that his father is hunting in, and we see that Gwen, in search of Larry, is in the woods as well, talking to Maleva. And she warns her away from the woods, but this goes unheeded. And this is, again, sort of the emotional side of this story with Maleva compared to the scientific side of this story with Sir Talbot. Everything sort of leading to this inevitable point where there has to be this confrontation between the two sides of this. They all meet up in the woods. It's this grand finale it really feels like it's been building to this all along in such a great way. Gwen is immediately pursued by Larry. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Himself pursued by a betorched mob, and they find him attacking Gwen, but Sir John is the one who gets to them first, unfortunately having to beat his son to death with the silver handle. This is where we get the, the transformation that we really get to see, and it looks fantastic as his face slowly morphs back to Larry's, Finally at peace, as Maleva repeats her line about the path being thorny through no fault of your own, and Sir John also looks on in horror. This is something, first of all, I thought was interesting, that the what well, the equivalent of the MPAA at the time made mm -hmm. it so that there couldn't be a man-to-wolf transformation, but there could be oh. a wolf-to-man transformation. Weird. And, yeah, and so that's why they saved this for the very end, uh, or at least that played into it. Do you know why that is? They they said that they didn't want to encourage bestial behavior. <laughs> it was like a like a uh, morality thing that they, or at least that's what I was reading. <laughs> sure, that stinks. That's so funny. But they must have gotten over it really quick because that happens later. <laughs> they saw how well it did. <laughs> they yeah. were like, "All right, yeah. we're gonna pay the MPAA to uh, yeah. look the other way yeah. on this." <laughs> that's really funny. But as they find the body of Larry there, the men all assume that the wolf attacked and Larry came to the rescue, though Sir John and Gwen must live with the truth. And I think that this is a really interesting ending because it is not super happy. And I think that no. that werewolf movies in particular tend to go this route because it is such a, a destructive uh, a curse and so people tend to have to put them out of their misery but for for something coming out right after Pearl Harbor and the US is going to war and everything for them to have this kind of bleak ending I think is very impressive and it works it helps to keep it yeah. uh, an interesting movie and it also does the thing that a lot of movies of this time did where it just ends yeah. Like, it's just like, it's done. It's done. There's no, like, wrap-up scene. There's no, like, <laughs> hey, how you doing after all that? I know it's been a crazy night scene. Like, it's just like, that's it. It's all over. Oh, you didn't stay after the credits and see Ryan Reynolds oh. go, so that happened. <laughs> I forgot that Deadpool was in the Wolfman verse. <laughs> I totally forgot that. It's, it's a wild scene. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but now, Patrick, we have reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in yeah. fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start things off. I mean, that's such a daunting thing to say. Yeah. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just going to go for it. Do it. Um, I think this I think this is taking out the context of Dracula and Frankenstein being the first. I think this is the best of the like first first you know movie in a universal horror series sure i think it's the most like fully formed i think it's like you know you got the best of both worlds with the makeup and the characterization it's a character you can relate to it's a character you feel for you feel bad for it's a character who shows up in other movies to varying degrees of quality for those movies but he's never bad in them yeah and i think that's important I think, you know, um, there's definitely other Draculas who show up and you're like, mm, you know, I, I don't need to see, is it John Carradine or whatever, uh, where right. you're like, he's fine, but it's different. <laughs> or or Glenn Strange is fine as uh, um, Frankenstein's monster sometimes, but it's definitely different than Karloff. You get Larry Talbot all the way through. I think it's got a good cast of supporting characters. I think having Claude Rains there adds a lot of gravity. Mm-hmm. Having, uh, you know, even like Ralph Bellamy's in this, where I was talking to my roommate today and I was like, it's crazy that this movie and Coming to America share a cast member in <laughs> Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> wow. Um, they sure do. Yep. Yep. And now I'm thinking about this. I wonder if John Landis hired him because he loved The Wolfman. And I bet. That seems very he possible did. to me. Yeah. I bet he did. I don't know. I just think this movie is is really good. It packs a lot in really quick. It gets right to it. You're, there's not a lot of dragon going on. You know, like we mentioned earlier, you've got three of the big horror guys with Bella and Claude and Lon Chaney Jr. in it. And I just, I don't know. It, it's a feel-good movie for me. In a, like, uh, not a feel-good, a comfort. It's a comfort it's cozy. movie for me. It's cozy as hell. It's cozy. It's cozy as hell. And uh, I think it's great. And I want everyone to, if you, listen, here's another thing. If you haven't dug into older horror movies, which I'm ashamed of your guests, your past (laughs) guests, I'm ashamed. I think this is a good one to go in with because it does not have the, oh, this is the very beginning of the 30s movie feel to it mm-hmm. you feel like oh they've actually been making movies for a little bit now and they've got it down yeah even though the other two are great and i love them and everything but this one feels a little more modern than those and it feels um the transfer is great too i was watching it on blu-ray it looks great i've said great a lot <laughs> no it's a great movie but it's a great movie and you guys are gonna have to deal with that yeah uh, i think that's it i mean listen i picked it for a reason and i picked it because i love it and i think um, it's really solid, and I think other people would like it too if they have not seen this one. Hell yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is so foundational. It is, like we said, it is it is part of this, this universal origin story that is so ubiquitous with American horror. And for it to be unique even amongst that stable of movies by the fact that it is not based on a book, by the fact that it has Lon Chaney Jr. as a through line through the entire thing, and not just a through line, but an excellent through line, someone who is, as you said, never the problem with a movie, even when it's one of the weaker ones. And for it to create such an incredible bedrock for a whole genre of movies to really build off of, to say nothing of the fact that it is still a good and entertaining movie today. 
You know, it is, like you said, short, which I'm always down for. So you don't have to commit too much time to it. Totally. But the performances are fantastic. Lon Chaney Jr. in particular, the emotion that he is bringing and the the way that it feels like he is incorporating aspects of his real life potentially into it that creates a realistic feeling to the character um, and, and a, a human trouble that the others don't have. It is an empathetic character. It's a character we can relate to a lot better than the other ones. And for the monster to be as out-and-out out sympathetic from the word go is really fantastic. I, it's something that I love about this, and it's something that I think is really difficult to achieve. And that, to me, is why this is the best horror movie ever made patrick i want to thank you so much for coming on the show man this was an absolute blast and i definitely want to encourage people to check out all your shows so definitely tell them where they can get your social follow you and and find out about the george lucas talk show all that stuff sure yeah thank you for having me first of all i had a very good time i was very happy to be able to watch this movie again um not that i need an excuse you know <laughs> you can uh watch the george lucas talk show we're doing it sporadically now. It's pretty much once a month, but they're all on YouTube. Um, we've had a lot of really great guests, you know, everyone from like Kevin Smith to Jason Manzukis to Darcy Carden to Whoopi Goldberg, just insane, insane people. Former um, best on- little horror house guest, Rich Summer. Rich Summer, the king, the king. That's right. Uh, I think he's been on seven times, I want to say, for <laughs> Lucas. You can find them all on YouTube. My recommendation is finding a guest that you like and then watching that episode because it's, you know, you'll obviously have a predisposition to liking it. Great reason. I am also, thank you. Um, I'm also producing this show called Rat Scraps, which is an improv show in New York where a celebrity comes in and tells stories from their life, and then they do improv based off of those stories. You can come see it in person if you're in New York, or you can watch it from literally anywhere in the world. Wow. It is live streaming, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, Sunday nights, three camera HD setup, fully edited, fully everything. It looks great. Um, you go to ratscraps.com. That's rat with four A's, R-A-A-A-A-T-S-C-R-A-P-S.com. Uh, and you can get tickets for like eight bucks for streaming. It's great. There you go. The future is now. The future's here. It's now. And you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Patrick Cotner, P-A-T-R-C-K-C-O-T-N-O-I-R. Um, I am currently trying to get more followers than the canceled NBC show, Sean Saves the World. We can we're do so it. so close. I think we're under 100. We're so dang close. We definitely have 100 listeners at least. So All people, right. I hope people, listen. it should. Okay. Here's what we'll say. If you listen to this and you follow me. Tweet at me and say, George sent me, you know? Perfect. <laughs> Let's do it, folks. Let's push him over. Uh, we're going to do it. That that canceled NBC show hasn't got anything on Patrick. Certainly not putting out as many jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely check him out and definitely check out the George Lucas talk show, which is also fantastic. You can follow me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That extends pretty much everywhere, although I did just get rid of the Facebook because I was tired of it and I never used it and Facebook is bad. So I got rid of that. <laughs> so basically just follow me on Twitter. You can follow the George Lucas talk show on Facebook, though. I want to be clear. You definitely can still Great, do go that. do that instead of following Best Little Horror House. <laughs> um, but you can also check out the Patreon for the Best Little Horror House in Philly, where we have all kinds of fun bonus episodes and stuff, including movies as philosophically in-depth as Solaris or as just best horror movie like um 2003's Freaky Friday. <laughs> so, truly all over the map. You can get it all on the Patreon, Little Horror PHL, just a couple bucks a month, and uh, you get all kinds of good stuff. So, check that out. 
And uh, rate and review if you're enjoying the show. And that's it. Thanks again, Patrick. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.